Always safe, high value and low carbon is the core or strategy. Renewable energy and low carbon solutions are a fully integrated part. Today, I'll be talking to Irene Rumelov, Executive Vice President of the business area New Energy Solutions in Statoil. I'm Hans-Jakob Hegge, the Chief Financial Officer in Statoil, and this is the CFO podcast Behind Our Numbers. Welcome, Irene. Thank you. Good to have you here. Um, the energy transition is taking place and renewable energy is growing faster than oil and gas. Irene, could you give the listeners a breakdown of the main elements in your portfolio? I can sure do that, uh, Hans-Jakob. Uh, as you know, uh, we have a twofold mandate within NES. One is to build a profitable, and I guess your listeners will appreciate that, uh, renewable business. Uh, and we, But we're also looking for low carbon solutions to prolong the life of our core products. Within the renewable space, uh, our primary focus has been on offshore wind. Uh, for many natural reasons, uh, lots of uh, key competences that we can reuse with our offshore wind. Uh, we're looking at both what we call bottom fixed and floating. We started to explore solar technology. And uh, as you know, both of these uh, energy sources are intermittent and would eventually need storage. So storage is also part of our integrated strategy. Within the low carbon segment, we decided to build on the competence that we have within carbon capture and storage. And that's been our primary focus. Um, but we can also build a lot on uh, that experience. And uh, as of late, we've started to talk a lot about hydrogen and the conversion of natural gas into hydrogen. So if to sum up floating and bottom fixed wind, solar, uh, storage, uh, carbon capture and hydrogen. So we are innovators in offshore wind and a world leader in carbon capture and storage. Could you explain the link between what we do in NES and our core competencies as an oil and gas company? When we started to think about what we should do in NES and develop our strategy, it was very natural for us to start thinking about, you know, what are we good at? What kind of competence can we use that we already have in-house and uh, offshore wind? We've been able to utilize a lot of our marine operations, installations, um, modifications. Projects are large and complex. Uh, if there's anything the oil and gas companies are good at, it's building complex projects. We see that our safety culture uh, is very transferable. Um, so it was an obvious first choice. Uh, same thing goes for carbon capture and storage, where we've um, brought forward uh, carbon capture technologies for enrollment in the test center on Mongsta. And um, we've also injected and captured CO2 for 20 years at Sleipner and more lately also than Snövit. So building on what we're good at was our starting point. And we also use a lot of the engineers from the oil and gas uh, business so we can use the competence. Yeah, I tend to tell people this story that uh, we do developed Dudgeon, which just put in place the last turbine uh, a couple of days ago. This project came in way beyond budget uh, and also before our anticipated schedule. And we've done that without hiring one single external wind engineer. We've done that by just transferring um, oil and gas engineers into wind engineers. 
So congratulations with that. Uh, but Irene, what competitive advantages does Statoil have when investing in renewables? I guess what we've talked about so far is technological and operational uh, advantages. But what we're finding is that there is a lot more um, non-technical advantages uh, that we need to bring forward. One example is our balance sheet. Um, key competitive topic within the renewable space is access to cheap financing. With our robustness, uh, we obviously have that, then we need to utilize that competence. Other examples are our ability to take on risk. Many of our competitors are small companies, poorly financed, regional companies that are not really willing or capable of entering new regions. Take us, for example, uh, we've been in Algeria for many, many years. We've learned to handle uh, the risk associated with tourism and, and so on. Whereas I think almost all of our competitors would be very, very um, hesitant to enter such a country. I think we could actually handle it in a good way. So ironically, uh, I ask my team to look for complex and risky projects because I, I think we have the ability to, to mitigate and handle those kind of risks in a different way. So we have the financial strength and we have the ability to handle risk and strategically renewables diversify our portfolio offer longevity and cash flow resilience. And we have the ambition to profitably invest 15 to 20% of our CAPEX in 2030. But today we spend less than 5%. That's correct. Um, and I'll be the first one to admit that the, the 15 to 20 CAPEX uh, share of our CAPEX is a very ambitious ambition. We need profitable projects. We do need profitable projects and uh, we don't have a clear roadmap of how to get there. Uh, Offshore wind will be uh, an important element in that respect, but I think we need to look uh, beyond that to actually get to those kind of levels of spending. Let's uh, dig a little deeper into our offshore wind and where we are today developing these projects that supply 1 million European homes with uh, renewable electricity. Um, how would you explain the development in offshore wind? Well, let me just start with the, this year because we're in the midst of a very, very exciting year. By the end of uh, 2017, we'll have three operatorships of offshore wind farms. In April, we took over the operatorship of the Sheringham Shoal Park from Statkraft. We just put in place the last turbine on Dudgeon, uh, so that's going to start producing in a couple of weeks. And Highwind Scotland will be up and running also within uh, at least less than a month. On top of that, we're investing in Germany. Uh, our Kona project is getting into a very important and challenging phase when we start the uh, offshore uh, installations. And we're moving quickly forward with the Dogger Bank and, and also the US project outside Long Island. Exciting. And uh, how would you describe the possible future potential globally of offshore uh, wind? 
Well, it's amazing how much attention this High Wind Scotland project has received. Uh, I think we've been on uh, Turkish TV, French TV, Japanese TV, British TV, etc. And there is a reason for that. Um, what floating can do is it can open up an enormous amount of new wind resource. The traditional bottom fixed uh, offshore wind can only do well in down to 40, 50 meters of water depth, uh, whereas floating hardly has any limits. That means that we can access a lot of coastline uh, with deeper uh, water depths. Norway is a good example of that. Um, west coast of the US, Japan cannot really do the traditional offshore wind. They can only they need to rely on uh, on floating. Longer term uh, and theoretically, uh, of floating offshore wind should be cheaper than bottom fixed. Bottom fixed, you need to customize every turbine to the seabed conditions, whereas the floating, you can, you know, envision the one factory just spitting out one turbine after the other because they're exactly the same. You can also make larger parks uh, optimizing the wind production. So it has a lot of things going for it. Uh, then to Statoil Energy Ventures, which is also part of your portfolio. And uh, could you explain to the listeners what we're trying to achieve and how we are progressing on this? Well, specifically to your listeners, you know, the CFO podcast, uh, the main aim is to make money. Uh, we do think we can find uh, startup companies out there with good ideas uh, that will grow uh, and um, increase their value. But we also see this as, a, as an opportunity to strengthen our own business by investing in companies that develop tools uh, that improve, for instance, offshore wind. We see it as an opportunity to test new technologies or new markets. An example of that is our investment in a company called United Wind, where we tested onshore wind and we also tested the distributed uh, business model. And we also aim to invest in, in companies that are looking into potentially disruptive technologies. Uh, one example in this respect is that we made an investment into a company called ChargePoint. It's the largest electrical vehicle charging companies. And sitting on the board, being part of the future development of the company will give us insight that is uh, unique uh, and useful compared to just reading reports from the McKinsey or the likes. So. Uh, we learned an enormous amount about the electrical vehicle development through this investment. So it's about profitability and learning, and it's quite exciting. Uh, then moving on back to your twofold mandate to develop the profitable renewable portfolio and um, to develop low carbon solutions for our core products, oil and gas. This includes capturing and storing CO2 uh, and looking into developing a hydrogen full scale value chain. Could you explain why we think developing low carbon solutions is going to be a competitive advantage going forward? For the world to reach the two degree scenario or even go beyond that, we need other solutions that just renewable uh, solar and wind. We believe carbon capture and storage is a key in that respect. But as I mentioned earlier, um, if you establish a CO2 storage, you can actually use that to convert our natural gas into hydrogen because we can split our natural gas into hydrogen and CO2. And if you have somewhere to store uh, the CO2, you basically convert natural gas into clean burning uh, gas. 
You can use hydrogen into power plants, existing power plants. You can use it as a substitute when you cook and heat your home. Um, and you can use it as a substitute also in uh, the transport energy. So uh, for me, this is one of the more exciting things we're working on because it has such a tremendous impact or potential impact. Just converting one power plant in the Netherlands that we're looking into right now will reduce the CO2 emission with the equivalent of two to three million cars. It takes quite a few hydrogen stations to actually do the same. Yeah, and it's, it reminds me of um, our CO2 emissions cuts from, from equivalent of one and a half million cars in Norway from our core business. So all this adds up to a more sustainable future, I guess. So. Um, Building on that, we expect strong demand growth in renewables for the next decades and our ambition is to grow and possibly expand into other areas of renewable energy as well. So focusing on attractive returns through both technology and business innovation. Could you share a bit on the other opportunities that we are looking at? Uh, for instance, solar? I must admit that we doubted a little bit whether we should enter solar or not because it's not as obvious that we have technological or operational advantages like uh, we have in offshore wind. However, we, if you follow the solar business, you've seen that the cost will come down exponentially and it continues to do so. And it will be an enormous important part of the energy mix going forward. And Stato being an energy company, I just couldn't sit and ignore it. So what we're proposing is at least go in, test the waters a little bit, get some real life experience and, and then judge whether this is something that all could be or should be uh, good at. So uh, right now uh, we've got quite a few interesting opportunities that we're looking at and um, hopefully uh, in a year or two we can sit down and have a very sound uh, judgment of whether this is something that could be an important leg for Statoil going forward. Since I'm the CFO, I have to ask the profitability question. How is the profitability going in renewables? I have a clear idea, but can you share some perspectives on profitability uh, with the listeners? Well, first and foremost, we were not going to go into the trap of comparing apples and pears. In other words, comparing the renewable projects with the oil and gas projects because they're very different in two uh, aspects. One is risk. We have no market risk as we tend to get fixed uh, power price in the renewable projects. We have no subsurface risk and we have limited CAPEX risk. The other element is the life cycle investment. When you get to a final investment decision in a renewable project, you have a few study costs behind you. Whereas in an oil and gas project, you tend to have a lot of dry wells, a few successful exploration wells, and then a lot of appraisal wells. So uh, the life cycle cost is, is very different. So having said all that, <laughs> I, up until now, we found uh, a very healthy uh, and robust economy uh, within our offshore wind projects. Uh, we've been seeing returns in the order of 10 to 11 percent going forward. I think it's fair to assume that there's going to be some pressure on that because, like I alluded to earlier, a lot of 
money is coming in and competition is is heating up um, but i'm convinced that if we look long and hard and make the right choices we'll uh, be able to make a robust return and uh, this will be a good investment for Statoil. Before we round off Irene, change uh, seems to be uh, the new normal and the pace is quite high. We do think that we will um, see a lot of changes going forward and taking that into account what do you think will surprise people the most if you look 10 years ahead of time? That's a tough question. But I think maybe how quickly change can happen when it's driven forward on its commercial merits rather than based on political intention or regulatory support. Uh, And I think we're seeing this within solar and wind these days. And I think we're likely to see that within the electrical vehicle segment very quickly. So. yeah, exponential growth, growth uh, if driven forward by its own commercial merits. Great, Irene. Thank you uh, for coming to my studio. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I wish you success with the renewals. Well, thank you so much. It's been great being here.